I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me. We are back with the next play in our season, the real estate horror Crawl Space by Karen Hines. Have you ever wished you could get in on Toronto's booming real estate market? Well, Karen Hines's play might just cure you of that. Her dark and funny show, Crawl Space, is inspired by her own experience of buying a fully detached condo alternative in a hip downtown neighborhood in a heated market, and how it all went horribly, nightmarishly wrong. Karen took her home ownership heartache and turned it into a cautionary show about greed, deception, and what really makes for a dream home. We hope you enjoy it as much as we have. This is part one of three of Crawl Space by Karen Hines. So, on my way here, I saw this two-story semi-detached, not a Victorian, but with the potential for four separate apartments without much rejigging. You could also make it into a nice single-family dwelling, three bedrooms up, one down, say for a teenager, take down some walls, and yet, in a way, it seems why bother, because there would be so much work to do just to make it vaguely contemporary-looking, when you could easily get three renters, live in the upper apartment yourself. It has a kitchen, it's very ugly, very cheap finishes, a rather elderly couple lived there. But they were pulling in like 900 from one apartment, 850 from another, both basement suites, very raw, very small, plus 1650 for the main floor. So that's like 3400 a month. So if you put 250000 down on this unrenovated million-dollar home, renters practically cover your whole mortgage. Kick things up a little, like, say, paint it. You can charge more. Then your food is covered, too. You don't need anything. You need nothing. Hi. Thank you for being here. I hope you have a drink if you... drink. And full disclosure, I wrote about half of what you're going to hear tonight, half cut. Actually, that's not true. Half of that half I was on Ativan, not alcohol. The rest I wrote without any chemical or other support, and I hope I never have to do anything like that again. What you are about to hear is inspired by a true story. That is, the things I am about to tell you are inspired by things that truly happened. I will be playing a version of my... self. When you buy a house, and when I say you, I don't mean you specifically, 
because depending on your demographic, chances are you will never buy a house, and we'll get to that. But when one buys a house, there are always known unknowns. And there are unknown unknowns. In 2006, I bought the smallest house for sale in the city of Toronto. The photo on the MLS website showed the sweet little lemon yellow house that looked like when a kid draws a house. Door, window, chimney, roof. It was 11 feet wide by 36 feet deep. The bedroom was 8.5 by 9, so too small for a dresser, just big enough for a bed. The hallway was 2.5 feet wide, so there was no closet there either. It's tiny. It's lemon yellow. It's set far back from the street, set basically in the backyards of the huge Victorians that surround it. A coach house, says the MLS website, meaning, I suppose, it once housed the people who ran the coaches of the people in the houses, and their coaches. But it has been a discreet legal entity since the 1970s, this coach house. It has a living room about the size of the bedroom, The kitchen opens off the living room and a bathroom off of that. And off the bathroom, there's a four-by-eight-foot walk-in closet at the back of the house. The walk-in closet is an addition, which the people who bought and flipped the house the previous year had built so that there would be a closet, a place for the hot water heater, stacked washer and dryer, so those things wouldn't have to be in the little living room or kitchen. The kitchen is tiny and beautiful. And everything in it is essential. The four-by-eight-foot walk-in, I learn later, is built onto the neighbor's backyard. And when I say onto, I mean onto. It extends one foot past the property line when it should legally stop three feet back from it and so shouldn't exist at all, according to Toronto zoning bylaws, and so will become bad for me in my life. Spoiler alert... And I will explain all that during the acid trip part of the show. But I didn't know anything bad when I bought the house. The survey was out of date, you see, so everything looked fine. The furnace is in a loft, shoved up against the cathedral ceiling, so right up where heat rises too, and so requires that the house's forced air be, like, powerfully forced down, which should have been a clue, but, see, it keeps it out of the way which is so important in a 400-square-foot home. My realtor sends an inspector, who says the furnace placement is stupid, but not dangerous. He also says the crawl space probably isn't insulated, which is why the floors are so cold, but that's it. The inspection takes less than an hour because the house is so tiny, and everything in it so new. I initial the forms, and he gives me half off his fee, which I think is very sweet. In 2006, I bought the tiniest house for sale in all of the city and lost it within 18 months. Lost my life savings, too, with the down payment, which was only about 30000 so no biggie, really, except that it took me about 20 years to save. I am a writer. Plus, I put the many expenses related to trying to save the house on credit cards whose limits kept rising and which I am still paying off today because I was an idiot. A credulous fool. An actress trying to be a writer. Trying to own a house. But you see, when you looked out the windows, all you could see were trees. And sometimes little possums would come around and their babies would hang from their tails. 
And I think that was the best part of that house. I am convinced there are people who do not have a certain gene. The gene that enables you to sense a money-making situation or a money-losing one. Oh, and I should probably mention at this point that I don't need your sympathy. There is a happy ending to this story. I would offer you some, but we're not in the same time-space continuum. The house was described as a condo alternative. It had no outside space to speak of, no pesky garden to tend to, just a window box and a cobblestone parking pad out front, a miniature deck on the south side. It's low maintenance, says the listing, which is important to me. Like many artists, I work many hours on my art as well as making money so I can do my art, doing things like corporate writing and radio commercials. I would suggest that many of us put in as many hours as lawyers, though lawyers might laugh at that, but then we make lawyer jokes, so perhaps it's a fair exchange. My brother is a lawyer, operates in the realm of labor law, grocery store clerks, garbage collectors, nurses. He's prosecuted them all. He's quite brilliant, and unlike me, he thinks three moves ahead. Anyway, it's very nice aesthetically, the house. It has bamboo floors and a slate backsplash in the kitchen, stainless and granite, as they say. And there are phone jacks everywhere and cable jacks everywhere. In fact, the whole thing is sort of insane. I would have taken a wartime house, unrenovated, same size, for less money, happily. And in fact, I was at first almost repelled by how twee this little place was. I had never been attracted to the Martha Stewart aesthetic. I had never been to a pottery barn. But all the other small houses for sale were less small, so they cost more money. And they all had something major to be done. Something like a leaking roof or a basement cesspool. Evidence of rats. I learned quickly I did not want a basement. Basements equal time and money, and I had no time. I did not want a fixer-upper. This is the beginning of the economic downturn. For writers, anyway. Television writers. This is when the writer's strike is happening, the one where 16,000 television writers inadvertently shoot themselves in the foot forever. This is when print magazines begin circling the drain and writers are writing more words for less money. And for those of you who are young, this is for you. This show. This is when SARS has made Canada a no-fly zone for American productions, and everybody is competing for fewer jobs. But meanwhile, house prices are climbing still, 18% a year in Toronto. And then, in the fall of 2005, this house, this little house, says on its MLS webpage that... Everything has been done. You see, on these real estate webpages, they eliminate vowels so they can say more things. That thing was key for me. Everything. Because I knew that after I put every penny I had down, I wouldn't have any money left to do anything. And it didn't have a basement. It had a crawl space. The Wikipedia definition of crawl space is a cellar you can't stand up in. And when you Google images, you see these concrete-walled little crawl spaces three to five feet high with plastic linings and neat metal drains, concrete walls that go all the way to the ceiling, and a tiny door somewhere, like for a child. Maybe a trap door from outside. 
I was a Moore Park girl. My parents were scientists, so not rich, but we grew up in a neighborhood with big houses that had basements with concrete walls that were damp but solid. So this just made sense to me, this concrete crawl space. And I liked the idea that my underneath wouldn't be connected to my kitchen by a stairway, because I'd lived in enough dives over the years to know that rats can climb stairs. And my realtor, who never claimed to love the house, did know the guy who did the work, said he had popped in during the renovations, said he had seen underneath. And when I signed the papers, I do recall that the sellers had ticked all the little boxes declaring that everything they had done had been done to code. So this concrete crawl space with neat metal drains was, for three months, what I imagined I lived above. All I didn't know was where the little door was. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. We used to live in caves. Before that, we slithered up out of the sea looking for shelter. To miscalculate the power of the beginning in the end is to misapprehend one's place in the universe. The end finds itself in the beginning. And yes, this is, of course, a first-world problem, this desire to own property that spans all classes. But as 2005 turns to 2006, it does seem to me that there is a ladder that all of my friends have climbed onto. A ladder that I was supposed to have climbed onto already. The ladder that leads to security, safety, and responsibility. But the ladder is flying away now, like in a disaster movie, where the protagonist has to jump to get on the very bottom rung of the helicopter rope thing. The ladder that has probably disappeared for you. Unless you have a rich and very generous family. Unless you have saved up impossible amounts of money from your three jobs. Unless you deal in high-end marijuana edibles. Oh, and by the way, I should explain at this point that anything I say this evening can and will be used against me. I do have an agent who is also a lawyer, Manny Abrams, and he has vetted this... this script that you are hearing tonight. I also have independent legal representation, but it is pro bono, and so contingent upon my sticking to the script, which has undergone some very recent redactions, so I need this document. Because, you see, the names and places described in this story have been changed. I'm supposed to say that. And no one did anything actually illegal. I'm supposed to say that, too. So, for example, if I say Parkdale, I may mean Leslieville. If I say my realtor is Danny, I may mean Jed or Troy, who could be found too easily by googling Troy, Corktown, and run for the cure. I'll explain that in a minute. If I say insurance, I may mean jest of God. And when I say financial help, I may mean harm. But when I say idiot, 
I mean idiot. And please don't dismiss that bit of apparent self-deprecation as some kind of auto-misogyny. This transcended gender. I was an idiot. In October of 2005, I found my realtor online and was drawn to him because of his toque. His hiking boots. The fact that he coached kids soccer and ran for the cure. He was an organ donor and the highest selling realtor in, let's say, Liberty Village. The day we met, he was returning from a month in Cambodia. He told me he admired Leonard Cohen. He told me he was Buddhist. He told me houses are better investments than condos. February 18th, 2006, I get the keys. The first thing I do when I'm alone in my house for the very first time is to walk through and listen to how quiet it is, set so far back from the street. I go to the window to watch the possums. I sit down on the windowsill, and it cracks under my weight. Because it's faux wood, plastic. And I tell myself, oh good, no mold. Already it's like, who am I? When I was a little girl, I had Barbies, and I loved them. And I did not notice anything weird about their proportions. I would hold them in my arms like they were pets, or put them in a little box and carry them with me to school. Soon the boxes had little blankets in them, handkerchiefs and washcloths I stole from my preoccupied parents who were too busy worrying about my adopted sister, who was often distraught, to notice the things I stole from them. I stole things from my teacher, gold stars to make my Barbie's wallpaper. I stole playing cards from my brothers for my Barbie's paintings. My father would give me emptied airplane bottles of gin, which I would fill with water from my Barbie's Texas Mickey's. I stole my mother's bracelets and necklaces that would serve inexplicably as decor. And I stole nickels from her purse, not minding that they were not to scale. My Barbies were wealthy. But it was all about joy. Plenty. Comfort. Those little boxes became homes, and I would put my Barbies in them and just stare at them and imagine their lives inside those little houses where everything was beautiful and calm and considered and from which they could leave, confident and free, to have their adventures. On my first night in my new house, March 6, 2006, I'm sleeping on the living room floor because I can't assemble the bed in the bedroom. There isn't enough room. And I feel a draft. I light a candle to ward off evil spirits, and it goes out. I walk the two feet to my kitchen get down on my stomach, slide along my bamboo floor, and see that there is a stretch of undrywalled wall below the Ikea counter unit, and actually crevices, vertical crevices in between slats of wood on the unfinished exterior, crevices through which I can see snow falling. Everything had been done, I thought, except this... On the second night, I'm asleep on the mattress on the floor and a mouse runs across my pillow. On the third night, I catch a mouse in a mouse trap, but it doesn't die. 
I had placed the trap in a brown paper lunch bag so that I wouldn't have to see, and the bag is now moving across the blonde bamboo floor. Though I don't have a phone yet, I have two phone books, the white pages and the yellow pages. I use the yellow pages, then the white pages, then the full weight of my adult body. And yes, to reconfirm, yes, I had an inspection, and yes, there was a survey and insurance, and I remember thinking, this is Canada, there are rules. Yet somehow, between them all, these professionals, these laws, or I'm sorry, safeguards, what I discover as the spring thaws everything is that I have bought this house, this tiny house, where the subfloor doesn't meet the walls. The foundation, which has been advertised as cement, is, yes, cement, but also made of cinder block, and some sections are wood, but the wood is laid on soil, so wood-to-soil contact, which I think the inspector missed because the wood is wrapped in this plastic casing that's normally manufactured as a casing for cement foundation, so it would have looked like cement, which is reprehensible on many levels, not the deepest of which is that there are termites three doors away, and they just eat through that shit. And on March 16th, a four-by-four-foot section of my newer roof slides off the house along with a melting ice slab, revealing that the back half of my newer roof is made of a kind of siding most commonly used in the southern United States as siding. Also, the newer roof is trimmed with metal at the front, but mostly with plastic fascia all around the back, which is known to be like squirrel candy. And though the one-sheet promised cable, there are no wires, just shiny plastic jack covers over little tunnels to the outside, which, why would anyone think they had to check that? And the one-sheet didn't promise phone, because who does? This is back in the day of the landline. Everybody has a landline. So that missing bit of cabling requires heroic efforts on the part of the bell telephone guy, who monkeys up poles and over roofs to the switch box across the block. And he tells me there has never been a landline at this address, which, what? So it's like a movie set. Or a showcase suite. Except because the subfloor doesn't meet the walls, the rodents are real. And you know why the subfloor doesn't meet the walls? Because, as I discover when I start looking into selling it again, against all advice, as apparently it looks bad to put your house on the market a month after you bought it, I discover my house is not a coach house. It's a garage. It was never a coach house. Coach house is like a euphemism, which there is apparently no law against using on the MLS website. A coach house, you see, is usually a brick building, built when there were coaches, pulled by horses. This building, largely made of wood, was built in the 1960s for a car, and then turned into a legal property in 1977 by an insane phoneless man. He lived there until 2005. He had built a shed at the back, which the flippers replaced with an actual room, the walk-in closet. But they didn't put it on the survey, which is why everything looked fine. And now, I don't want to live in my house. I want someone else to live in my house. Within weeks of moving into my house, I want nothing more than to rent it out. Leave it behind. There were no horses in Toronto in the 60s. And if you find yourself getting lost in these many details, don't worry, I will go back and pick up the dropped stitches. Because that's what I do now. The crazy sign goes in circles for a reason. 
And yes, when I was a teenager, I was diagnosed with a kind of mood disorder. But I had intelligent and supportive scientist parents and a cutting-edge shrink who managed me such that I had managed myself without episode for more than 20 years. But then one day, after exterminating, re-roofing, re-drywalling, installing vents, cable, and a landline, I found myself at the Bloor Street Pottery Barn fingering a decorative twig orb. Nothing crazy happened that day at Pottery Barn, depending on what you mean by crazy. No nakedness in the model suite, no weeping on the Valencia 2 sleigh bed. But I did find myself weirdly disturbed, in the eye of a swirling zeitgeist. And after living my entire adult life with inherited pieces of furniture made of painted wicker and wood, I find myself spending thousands of dollars on useless rustic wood ladders and found olive buckets. Chelsea reading lamps for people who don't read, so that my new home might be stylish and anodyne enough for any personality. I'm buying chunky pillows and distressed tin wall decorations. Fucking chalkboards. I'm playing the game now in the name of getting my soul the fuck out of greedy Parkdale. I mean, Riverdale. I do this all on my credit cards, whose limits rise conveniently. This is before the Great Recession. This before automatic caps are placed on credit cards and a girl has to ask for a limit raise, as opposed to just looking down one insane day and seeing that she has spent like $20,000 just to make her house worth what she paid for it, plus another ten grand at Pottery Barn, Williams-Sonoma and the Bay for decor. I look down at my credit card statements, but I don't panic. No problem. I am going to make money on this lemon. Now, this was before Airbnb, and where I thought I was going to find my imaginary professors who would want to stay in a house 30 minutes west of U of T, or my imaginary movie stars who would want to brave the Gardner Expressway after their 14-hour shooting days at Studio City, or famous ballerinas, or pixies. And so that you know, This whole thing was inspired in the beginning by a pretty reasonable desire to pay less for my mortgage than I was for my rent. I had a fantastic apartment on Palmerston Avenue over a store. Warped floors, high ceilings, transoms. But like many artists, I was often away. And my landlords did not grok the concept of subletting. So when I found the little yellow house, I decided spending twice what I had been on rent to mortgage a home that I could rent out half the year made mathematical sense. Which it does. In artist math. Which is forgiving. And real estate is such a good investment. And a house is a way better investment than a condo. Better than the $189,999 one-bedroom at King in Portland I nearly bought. Cork floors, soapstone countertops, undermount sink, three-by-eight-foot tempered glass front balcony, and option to purchase parking spot. And I wonder sometimes who I'd be now if I had lived at Portland and King. If I'd heard humans breathing through my walls instead of animals and wind. That was part one of three of Crawl Space, written and performed by Karen Hines. Episodes two and three are available now on Play Me. The floor director for this recording was Jordina Beattie. 
Dramaturgy is by Sandra Belkowski and Blake Brooker. Crawl Space was first performed publicly at Video Fag in Toronto in September 2015. It was commissioned by William Ellis and Jordan Tannehill. This episode's sound design and edit is by Chris Tolley. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expect Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.